Hello and welcome in. I'm Wendy Campbell. I want to thank you for taking a moment to check out this podcast. Now, you're probably wondering what this podcast is all about. So let me see if I can break this down for you. Essentially, this podcast is all about health and wellness and travel and adventure and friendships and all the things that really kind of get you. Um, I was looking around. I've been really searching for these conversations that I just have not been finding. Now there's a lot of great podcasts out there. So I don't want you thinking that that's what I'm saying. I just felt like there was something different, something that was missing. So we decided to create the podcast. Now, that being said, um, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you find what I hope to find out of it, which is just a deeper connection and a little bit more community. So in this first podcast, we connect with Jessica Patterson. She is the director and owner of Root Center for Yoga and Sacred Studies in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You can find her online if you want to check her out right now while we're talking at rootdownandgrow.com. Um, I've been lucky enough to know her for many, many moons now. In fact, we met years ago while we were in boarding school in Colorado Springs. So let me tell you, she is so much more than a yoga teacher. She's totally a guru. She's a spiritual guide. She's a yoga therapist. She's a travel adventure buddy. She's all the good things. And I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Um, so while we talk, it's a lot about yoga. It's a lot about spirituality, but it's so much more about the connection. Um, programming note, while we were having our conversation, conversation, the video portion of the conversation only recorded her. However, if you're listening on audio, this will affect you not at all. So either way you enjoy it, it's worth it. It's totally worth a deep dive. So traveling straight into the heart of it, please enjoy Jessica Patterson. Hello. Hi. How are you? Thank you for agreeing to do this. I'm yes. So I was like, wait, what are we talking about? So I'm excited. I'm like, oh, I get to hang out with Wendy and we'll just talk like whatever. <laughs> It doesn't seem like once you hit 40, there's a place for you to go talk about all of the things. So wellness and health and family and money and all the things that make us whole, regardless of what we're doing, we've already done a lot of things. So it seems kind of needless to turn around and be like, okay, well, I'm going to give you a life hack. Well, I don't need a life hack per se, but what I do want is to build a community. Um, but anyway, so when we first started talking about it, I was trying to think of, okay, well, who would I want to talk to? Who would I want to bring into this circle? And, and you were honestly one of the first people I thought of, because I think you started root about the same time I got pregnant with my son. And I was like, oh, I'll go as soon as like I've had him and whatever. And then (laughs) we moved and never made it in, but I've always loved, like, I love the community that you've built Mm -hmm. and I love, I love the people that, um, I didn't know you knew that Uh know you now that are, they seem completely different and changed. And I love all of that. So what I wanted to do is kind of talk with you and, and really kind of start with, you know, you and I have a long history. Um, and it's been a wonderful history, but we don't connect as much as we socialize on social network. Mm -hmm. And so kind of bringing that into that space of, of like a tangible conversation and, and kind of, um, I guess we don't have to start all the way back in high school because that's a million years ago. We could, we could, um, but you and I started there and then kind of separated over time and, and kind of reconnected, um, as you were starting root. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to start at the very beginning kind of, um, of where you've always been poetic in nature and beautiful in nature. And so I'm not surprised that when you started root, I wasn't surprised at all. It just seemed like a natural place, but can you kind of bring me up to that point 
between in the gap and we'll start there and then kind of go through all of the things. And I'd love your input on all things. So I don't want it to be like a Q and a kind of thing, but more of a, let's talk about these things that you seem to have a natural intuitive connection to. Well, thanks. Oh, so happy to see you. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I started, um, I started practicing right out of high school. So right after I graduated, I went to Cornell University. And um, while I was there, I took a class. And then even I ended up leaving Cornell for various reasons and took a year off. And so I dabbled in a yoga practice. And um, fast forward, I went to graduate school in 2002. And um, right out of graduate school, and actually during graduate school, my practice became even more powerful for me because I was doing a lot of research of some pretty violent stuff. And um, yeah, what were you, what were you? So I, I was in the English department, but I was in the sort of like cultural criticism and literary criticism. So lots of intersections with philosophy and what was then women's studies, now more gender studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my work was actually around um, the naturalization of violence against non-human animals and specifically factory farmed animals, the ones who are the least visible and the least, you know, like we're not likely to see them as individuals. We see them as products. We see them. So, so I was looking at that through the lens of how language allows that kind of violence, the historical ways in which we've created those hierarchies, um, how those hierarchies operated to at any given time in, in history, also say, well, you're not human or you're subhuman and, and what that means, right? When you create a hierarchy like that, which is relevant to the work I do now, which is why I'm addressing it. But so I was in graduate school, finished graduate school, took a job at University of Colorado, Colorado Springs in the English department, was teaching there. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad died and he died very suddenly, right? Like we were emailing about a time to talk. I was in my office doing office hours and I left the building that, that evening and I went home and within a couple of hours, I got a phone call that he'd had a heart attack and died. Oh, I'm so sorry. <clears throat> so he was 56 years old and um, it was one of those, right, irretrievably destabilizing times. And I was married at the time and um you know, work, working in the English department and so forth. And I guess the best way just in terms of not belaboring the story is because I also now do a lot of work around grief, mm-hmm. grief and loss. But, you know, it's one of those things where you're thrown up in the air by the proverbial rug being pulled out from underneath you. And in that time, you have, you have an opportunity in a way to reassess how you're going to land. And I didn't want to land where I had been. And so it, it was not only a destabilizing for me as a destabilizing for me as a person, it became something that shifted my entire life. But in that period, um, my, now my heretofore sort of dabbling practice in yoga became essential. And it's just, I started working with it every single day because it was the only time that I felt anchored in my body. Mm -hmm. And I felt clear about uh, 
anything when nothing else felt clear. And so from that, then by the end of that year at UCCS, I, I didn't, I just didn't feel, I didn't feel like going back and teaching. And so I sat with it again. These are things that now I do all the time. I'll sit with something and just let my, like, feel into if it's a yes or a no, like Mm -hmm. super clear, you know, the ego gets very garrulous about it. It wants to explain all the reasons and all the detail, but it's like, yes, no, stop, go. Right. And for me, it was a no. And I didn't know exactly what that meant, but at the same time, because of the work I'd done in graduate school, I was hooked up with various um, animal advocacy organizations who needed help with communication and uh, how to make a message more effective and how, how to make it more clear and everything from copy, copy editing to really helping someone shift the message that they're giving. And so I had started studying nutrition, just like it seemed like this natural thing because um, many people, when they encounter the the violence against uh, agricultural animals and they decide, okay, I want to, I'd like to, you know, more plant-based, what do I do? I was like, here, I'll learn about that. And so I did two different schools of nutrition Mm -hmm. and at the same time had begun formal yoga training and none of this with the intention of becoming something just, just, you know, like little steps along the way. And after I'd done my first formal yoga teacher training, my teacher at the time asked me to cover a class and I, you know, had no interest. And to this day, I would say, I know I've, I'm, I'll get to root, but to this day, oh, no, you're doing great. This is exactly the way it should go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I've always had a reluctance, right? So I think there are lots of people who go into the sort of work that I do and they have an agenda. They're like, I want to be a this or that. And I, that was not me. And, um, so I never, for, for example, I, I wasn't interested in creating a teacher training program. I taught for many programs, taught for program Durango, taught for several programs in Colorado, North Carolina. And at some point along the way in my, in my classes, um, I had enough students who were saying, Hey, can I do a training with you? And I'm like, well, I teach here, here, here. And he said, no, I want to do something with you. So I created something. And this has become um, a, a sort of tenet, I guess, for me is when it's a relevant, it's a meaningful response to something, I, the work is very different. So it was, a, it was a response to a request, to a sincere request that I created a teacher training program. <clears throat> and I continued to teach all over. And um, eventually after, I guess, 10 years of teaching and running that you know, running a program for, I think at that point it had been maybe four, four or five years. I don't even remember now. Um, it just, I, I was no longer interested in being subject to someone else's space and their ideas about what yoga was or what were there to do. And I also had, and I don't, I can go into this a little or a lot, but I had a really, um, Leading up to Root, I had started a PhD program in California, and I had decided that I didn't need a PhD, that I would, you know, read all the books anyway, and I was on on this sort of cusp of what am I going to do with the work that I've been doing, and do I want to keep just, like, 
teaching out of other people's spaces and being subject to, to their visions and so forth. And um, I went through a really bad situation, which I can touch on if it's, if it's useful. Um, but suffice to say, I had uh, not like, not just a breakup, but like a doozy of a breakup. Mm-hmm. And that also entailed uh, a health crisis. And so I was just, I was at this point where I was like, I think I'm just going to walk away from it all and go do something else. And something in me again said like stay. And I ended up opening root instead. So while I had this sort of instinct to run and get away from everything and just unplug from the whole identity, I instead rooted in even deeper and created a space really in response, not just to the work that I'd been doing, but I needed a sanctuary. I needed a space that felt like a space where important work was happening, not just the gymnastic fitness idea of yoga, but the real work of it. Um, And so Root itself was birthed out of number one, a really um, very challenging situation for me personally. And at the same time, it was a response to a community that at that point was outgrowing the containers that could hold us, mm-hmm. you know, and hold us in a way that felt in alignment with what I most valued, which is not the superficial, is not the exercise based, mm-hmm. you know, like I'll be the first to tell people a lot of yogic teachings were originally uh, designed to help, to help an individual cross over from one life into the next. And so it's uniquely equipped to help us in these major transformations in our lives, including the death of all those we love, which is guaranteed. Which is beautiful in, in so many different ways. And I want to dive deep into that. But before we go much further, I, I also just want to champion you for a moment. And there's so much in today's world that almost forces and requests you to not follow your intuition. It's very much noise, 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 look this way. I've got the best idea, follow my idea. You know, there's a lot of blinking lights. And so I think to your point, a lot of, um, what I'm feeling, and I think a lot of people are feeling is that, that almost, cry for the intuition call. So in order to bring it back, it's almost like you have to pull out and you do this very well. I see you step away from all things electronic all the time. And, and every time you do it, I'm like, Oh, I want to do that too. (laughs) But I'm also the media director. So, uh, but, but so to that though, I think, I think, um, on a, on a larger scale, the recognition and, and almost the, the calling to women who are so centered, um, you know, bring back the center and start listening and taking the moment and the pause. Um, did you know intuitively to pull away the, when you first started pulling away or did you just automatically do it? Was it, was it, um, something that, you know, people were telling you to do, or did you just feel it? You mean in general, as part of the sort of general self-care of Jessica, just kind of the Jessica path. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that did you know I missed 30 days of school my senior year of high school so I think I've had I think I've always had um a kind of nature that as 
I don't like reducing it to introvert and extrovert. Although I will tell you that anytime I've taken any of those assessments, I fall very hard introvert. Mm -hmm. But what I think I've always had an instinct toward contracting and I really enjoy solitude and quiet. And I think that when I have that, my, well, what I know is that my whole, my whole nervous system, everything settles. And then I feel regenerated and rejuvenated and able to create, but I have to create from a kind of a place of stillness, not a space of feeling uh, revved. So I think part of it, I come by just naturally a a rhythm like that, that I can't sustain too much outward energy. I have to draw in to do it. But I think life really taught me that too, that I was forced into it at times where you're just sort of brought to your knees. I say this to my students all the time. You're brought to your knees and you either decide, are you brought to your knees in surrender or are you brought to your knees in reverence? And I think I'm brought to my knees a lot in a reverent way. Um, but coming back to what you're saying, the center, so much of what we're, so much of what we're, uh, conditioned to how to experience ourselves and how to express ourselves, particularly as women is from the outside in as objects of others, gaze, or as objects of others, validation or objects of others, desire or what, or approval or, you know, fan you know, fandom, whatever it is. And when you're an object, you're not necessarily making decisions as a subject. You're making, you're always making your decisions. You're basing everything from the periphery in, Mm -hmm. if it ever penetrates the center. And life, I think, just has a way, of course, of jostling us into our center because the periphery becomes so unstable. You know, there's only so much you can do on the surface before the foundation of, of who you are has to it has to be able to sustain that. Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of it for me. Um, I, I do, I, you know, like necessity as the mother of invention. I mean, it's necessity that's pushed a lot of things for me. It's not always just, um, meaning I think the deeper intuition, because I think there's a level that we confuse intuition with our conditioning and our habits and the assumption that the intuition is always going to guide us towards something that feels like ease. And in fact, often our intuition, like the real, the real compass setting is toward living your life. If we were to put it this way, uh, there will never be another you like it's never going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And so why waste one's life force and life energy trying to follow what, you know, just other groomed paths. And so life wants to live itself through us. And that means at times that we're going to be directed. If we're really, if we really get clear about the intuition, we're going to be directed into the stuff that just scares the crap out of us. Or, or where we've, the, where our cultural training has taught us to be like, I don't have the money or I don't have the this, or, you know, all the stories of not being enough. And so, you know, sometimes I think what we call intuition or instinct is just the, the next layer of our cultural training. Mm-hmm. But when you're really tapped into it and you really let it guide you, it's not, it, it's guiding you into the thickets because it's about you making the life that is authentic. Right. 
Right. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of people. I think one, because it's terrifying, uh, but two, because listening and truly being authentic to yourself can, it, you know, sometimes you just don't always, you want to believe that you understand it. Um, but you get into a position where the challenge seems overwhelming and then you've got all of the input. So the noise, and again, it comes back to everyone's opinion of, of what you are. And I think what's interesting about that is being able to stop it and, and really go forth with that path that does kind of break your brain a little bit and take you to the new place. Because I think that's where the, that's where the, the good stuff is. That's where the next level energy is. So, yeah. Exactly. And when you put it in terms of energy, you think of it often, like how energy outgrows a form, Mm -hmm. whether it's a marriage or it's a job or it's something that we've been doing in our own lives. There's a certain amount, like say, whatever you need, whatever somebody calls it called Mm -hmm. prana in the world that I work in, someone else might call it their soul or, you know, their true self, but by whatever name we call it, when the energy essentially it needs. So you either, you either keep insisting on the, on the old form at the expense of the energy at the expense of the life force, at the expense of the creative force, at the, you know, at the expense of that, or you let that transform you, which is by, by definition, a relinquishing of the old form and a period of that liminal period where you're neither what you've been, nor have you become the next version. And that's the terrifying part because there is, you are in, you are in the Mm in-between and I say in, you say in formal, like physical practices of yoga, you're most likely to get injured in a transition, but it's true in life. It's in transitions. We tend to speed up because we want the next known thing. Mm-hmm. And we make really erratic decisions. We grasp at something that seems to give us uh, short-term security or stability. Again, at the expense of where you're really being, like if you'd really let your life lead you towards something you may have to let go of security and stability for a while, but, but be able to find solid ground in meaning. Right. Purpose. Right. Exactly. And I think, I think, um, I think it's important that, that the conversation comes back to that often, um, because there is so much misinformation about how you should find your way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it starts so young. We, we start when we're children and, and we're molded into these little, little mimics of our parents. And then as we go off into, you know, the teen years and start exploring and learning who we are, then we're taking it from our peers. And then we get into relationships and we take it from our, our partner. And then, you know, it, you get to a point, and I think that's kind of um, analogous to where we are now, where I'm at a point, and I'm sure you're at a point too, because this is you know, kind of who you are, but at a point where going back and, and taking the opinions of everyone isn't as entertaining anymore. Like, I want to know who I am based on what I think. And I, I want my people around me to share that energy because I think that's where the really good magic is. That's where, you know, you really get to the heart of friendship and relationship. And, you know, so early we learned, um, at least I learned, that, you know, that true, true identity is so much more important, more valuable. Um, no matter what form it's in, even the broken form is more honest. And that mm-hmm. honesty is, is a much more intriguing place to be. Sure. And that's the real heart of intimacy. I mean, I don't think any of us actually get to know ourselves in a vacuum. We're, you know, part of an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. 
but I think that we, when we lose track of, again, that we're subjects of our lives and not objects, backdrops to the lives or the visions of others. And then those relationships, as you said, like to me, the real, the real, um, the intimacy of a relationship is the willingness to be in the hard stuff, the messy stuff, just cutting to what is real. And the more situated we are in that, the more um, comfortable we are with that. It's not a known thing. It's not like you know yourself and it's a done deal, but right in the process of, of the, the yearning to always be in that deeper connection with oneself, we tend to then cultivate deeper relationships with others that therefore become the nurturing forces that we need when we ourselves need to be held. And that's very different than the sort of codependent models that are given to us of, you know, making one person your everything, Mm -hmm. making one situation your everything. It's a very precarious thing when you know that ultimately it's temporary. There's something else that happens in this sense of um, a phrase I use a lot, like distribute the effort. So like in a community, I I did a year-long program called The Untraining, and it was dedicated to yoga as embodied activism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we worked with in sort of a meta level was how we were working as a community, which meant, right, uh, people coming to the forum and being very real about what's going on in their lives. And instead of just the like, oh, we're sorry, you're going through that world. It was like the burden could get distributed throughout the community. So like you have 30 people seeking to help alleviate some of the unnecessary suffering in a situation so that that person can just feel held and go through the experience that they're having, as opposed to, you know, the ways in which um, we'll often withhold ourselves from one another unless we feel perfect or, and therefore we don't let one another in. Mm -hmm. And so, and so it's a less, like if it were, if it were a weaving, it would be, so loose a weaving it would unravel with the slightest pull but when you let one another in into the mess into the question the unanswerable questions all of that it's a tight weave and it's a and there's resilience in that that Mm -hmm. isn't just on the individual like for me to know myself i must also be known right really a juxtaposition that is just going to take a while for everyone to kind of come to but i i totally agree Um, And so I guess that brings me to um, your grief training that you do, um, which I thought I'd seen it a few times um, and thought it would, what a beautiful thing to bring together and learn and, and to really share that, that experience. I think one of, one of my girlfriends, I was going through a tough time and a bad breakup and I was a mess. And I remember her looking at me and saying, you know, Wendy, just feel your feels, feel them and let them happen. And no one, I think before that had ever actually given me permission to not that I needed it, but I didn't know that I wasn't doing it. Mm -hmm. And so that awareness and that openness kind of let me go through my things, but also open the door for every other bad situation that happened. Um, so I think what you're doing, I think is beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I'm very curious. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, Oscar Wilde said, this is something I actually say in the workshop. I just happen to have the handout next to me, but Oscar Wilde said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. And I love, I've always loved that where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. 
And um, so I created this program. I'm a yoga therapist and, you know, there, there are lots of things where it's like yoga for something. Mm-hmm. And it starts to sound like, you know, take two of these and call me. Right. <laughs> exactly. And so one of my issues, I'm like, but what is yoga? Like, what is yoga? And I define yoga very differently. Um, and so I created a program called the yoga of loss. It's the yoga of loss, not the yoga for loss. Because first of all, as you know, part of the human condition is that we will lose, mm-hmm. right? Like loss is inevitable. It's the one condition we'll all go through. Not everyone will have cancer. Not everyone will struggle with addiction. Not everybody is going to experience chronic pain in their lives, but we will all lose loved ones and situations and aspects of ourselves. And so in yoga, there's a, uh, well, first of all, the way I define yoga comes from a definition from a teacher, from one of my teacher's teachers, Sri Ramananda Saraswati, who said that yoga is the state of missing nothing. And when I've sat with that over all these years, there's always, there's like, yoga is the state of missing nothing, which means when you're in the yogic state, you're not operating from the stories of deficiency or brokenness or fragmentation or, um, not being enough or being too much, right? You're in the state that there's nothing that's missing. But it also reminds me, you know, like to be in the state of missing nothing means you also don't miss it. You have the ability to be aware of a lot of things and not miss the the little moments that add up to the big moments. Mm -hmm. Like again, when I think about losing my father and it's been 17 years now, you know, what I miss are the ordinary moments. And yet it's in the ordinary moments in our lives that we tend to tune out the most. But if you think about like, you know, your son or like this, this, our dogs, it's the ordinary, it's the ordinary moments that, that we miss the most. So don't miss it is a part of that teaching for me. But in that, then anything that we do that we say is yoga ought to be in the service of this state of missing nothing. So it ought not to compound any pre-existing ideas I have about how I'm not enough or not good enough or not this enough, or I'm to this or to that, right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't reinforce and concretize any ideas I have about being broken or deficient. And so loss is an inevitable experience. And so to say there's a yoga of loss is also to say that there's a, there's a sequence Mm-hmm. there is a, uh, an order to it and it's not phases and it's not a linear process at all because life isn't. So I think of loss as a rite of passage. It's something that ushers you from who you thought you were into who you are. And every time we have another loss, it awakens all the losses we've experienced before. So I've come to think of loss as sacred land, holy ground not a thing you go through, but a place we go to again and again and again, until we, to a certain extent, make a home of it, like come to know it as a place where we can be. And so I created the, the workshops and the trainings around it. Number one, we come together and we just are very open about the, everything from the, say the physical experiences of, of grief and loss if you look at all the symptoms, like we're going to use the word symptoms, but right, like the experiences, physical, psychological, physiological, emotional, relational, spiritual, even um, those lists of symptoms dwarf just about any other condition you could come up with. It's so multifaceted. 
it's so profound. Loss is so profound. And in my experience, there's nothing like our own mortality or just the call to look at it that calls me more into life. Like when I remember how temporary, how fragile in a way life is, suddenly I'm, I'm no longer missing it because this is it. Mm-hmm. So we have the, we, we talk, we explore a lot about the context of grief and loss. And one of the main things that we look at in the beginning of the program is how inept our culture, the dominant culture, I should say, is. And that we think, and this is a, this is an offshoot too, to spiritual work in general, that we think we've, we, what we've done is we, we've taken this mythology of the rugged individual and we keep imposing it on everything. Like, you know, spiritual work is not work just to be done as an individual and, and certainly not the work of mourning and loss. And when you feel like it's like your thing to work through versus across cultures and at different times in different cultures, the way the community came together to support the griever mm-hmm. and the way it was um, clearly marked as something that someone was going through, as opposed to like, okay, you get two weeks off to grieve the sudden loss of your Take your time, come back, come back with a smile. And please come back. Yeah. Come back the way you were. Mm -hmm. Don't come back unchanged. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I've been down in the underworld. Like, you know, you're eating pomegranates with the the gods of the underworld and you come back and they want you to be the same. It's, it's amazing to me that the world thinks that way, but yes. And, and what I think is interesting and how it kind of correlates to now um, and this is kind of diverging a bit too, but with everything that we're going through globally and all of the loss of not just, you know, I've lost people, but you've lost freedom and you've lost friends and you've lost that connection and that community. Um, and, and there's also the concern, not even the concern, but just the threat of not getting back to a normal place where we can reconverge with that. I imagine that need and that desire is going to get bigger. And so how do you balance the global weight of loss of all of the things with, with a better energy, with a stronger energy, with a united energy? Cause I don't, I'm, I'm struggling to see how we come out of this more unified. Um, to me, it seems like we almost must segment in order to come out of it the way that it's structured to come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, part of, I'd, I'd say in a way that's maybe what bubbles underneath so much of the work I do uh, is a response to, um, let's see, how do I want to put it? There is no going back. Right. That's, that's what. And I think that um, we have to create, col- uh, we have to create culture mm-hmm. that is capable of moving through transformation together. So I think part of the divisiveness within, within individuals, within families and within like the, the bigger picture right now, as we see the political divisiveness and so forth, a lot of what I am able to hear underneath it is a deep attachment to something, the attachment to something not changing, which in yoga is, is known as uh, dvesha, is like an aversion to something changing or an attachment to something, right? Like holding on to something. And the problem with it is like, life is always transforming. 
So when we come together, first of all, finding different ways of connecting is so important because I, it's like I said to my students the other day, say, I love you with me. And we all said, I love you. And then I said, now I want you to figure out 10 other ways to say that without using words, like find multiple ways of saying the same thing. And it, so it strikes me that that's one of the keys that we have to find new way, new ways of connecting, new ways of expression, expressing our connection. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately we have, in order to move into this next, like we're being in a sort of, we're in a collective initiation. And there are those who are trying to retreat back to the starting point and it doesn't exist anymore. And there are those who are racing to get back to some, you know, racing to get somewhere that doesn't exist yet because it's all contingent on what we do now. And so I think there's great power even in the small villages, you know, like the small communities, a community of friends, a community, right? Like what you're doing, where you start mm-hmm. to create a different, different ways of perceiving what it is we're going through. And it's really easy too, I think, to fall into that it's all bad, but, you know, just like any crisis, any tragic time is also incredibly illuminating. It reveals a lot. Now, of course, it's also going to reveal, I always like liken it to if you have an unfinished basement or like a room where you store stuff and you finally are like, I'm going to take a look and you go in and you like turn on the light, you're going to see everything. You're not just going to see the stuff you like that you find so valuable. You know, the thing that you're looking for. You're also going to see the stuff that you're like, why do I keep holding on to this? Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're in this, space right now where the light is being cast and it's almost a glare right now of all the fissures of all the um little violences and of all the places that have long been there they're just right it's amplified now but so too there's so much there's so much beauty and there's so there are so many opportunities to find relief I think it's an incredible time for people to redefine what productivity is, what work is all about, what we expect from ourselves and one another, how we just sort of arbitrarily follow certain ideas about what it is, you know, to work, for example, Mm -hmm. and how that could look different. So, you know, I don't know if I'm, I think, no, I think you're right. I think it, I think it, it's, um, it's a valuable insight to, to, accept it and take it and grow from it and not hide from it. I think that's huge. And part of the problem as I see it is that we're not equipped to digest and metabolize so much of what we've taken. And because like, if I were to, if I were to use the metaphor of the, or the analogy of the digestive system, if the digestive system is compromised, no matter what you're putting in there, you're not going to make good use of it. And I think we have sort of, again, in yogic terms, we talk about this as our, it's like Agni, our fire, and it's low, it's weak. And it means that as everything's coming in, we're not digesting it, which means we're not integrating it. We're not metabolizing it. We're not, we're not able to release the waste of it. Mm-hmm. So we're, there's sort of this collective, like carrying things around. It's like a collective energetic, spiritual constipation all the time, psychological <laughs> constipation. You know, and it's like, we need digestion, which if we're looking at the 
the metaphor of the digestive system, it means you need to rest because the only way to digest is when the system can come into some kind of rest. Oh, there you are. Okay. I thought that was funny because I, I said the pause <laughs> and I paused like, <laughs> Pause for effect. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I think you're right. I, I think, um, you know, it's going to be a hard turn for a lot of people to do that. Um, but there is, there's magic in the rest, which brings me to fun and adventure, not to jump too quickly to the other side, but I love the idea of, of finding your, your tribe and traveling with your tribe. Most of the adventures I've been on, some of the best adventures I've been on have been with friends and family and, and just going to places I didn't expect to go. And you have that, that evolutionary moment in your time where something about you changes, whether it's because of the beauty of the place or the, the stress of the adventure or the fun of the adventure, whatever it is. So I know that you like to take your tribe on adventures and I want to hear about them and why you choose those locations. Um, what typically you see from those and where you're going next. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, um, one thing I think happens when we travel, I taught in Tai, Taipei, Taiwan one summer, and it was the most, you know, I, I spoke no Taiwanese, I spoke no Chinese, um, I had interpreters for most of the classes I was teaching, it was extraordinary, and one of the things that really hit me at that time that I think I'd known prior is when you travel, you also you get to leave behind when I was talking about form, like suddenly, right. You find different aspects of yourself because in a different context, in a different culture where something else gets called forward. So that's one thing that I think is really therapeutic and can be super therapeutic when we're in a community of people we love or feel close to, or feel safe with that. There's this sort of, it happens kind of collectively. We're not just reinforcing. We're not like sort of policing the, who we think the other person should be, you know, travel opens that up for us. I love that about seeing the world. Um, I like to go, so lots, you know, throw a rock and you're going to hit someone and they're going to be like, I'm a yoga teacher. So it, that's, <laughs> and so for me, I, um, apart from, you know, like, what does it really mean? And what is all of this that we're teaching? There's also, I'm not interested in doing what everyone else does. I never have been. And so I generally let myself be drawn to the things that I'm drawn to. One of those is, especially in the bigger conversations around the misappropriation and the commodification of westernized yoga is, you know, within that, within those conversations is a call to oneself to also acknowledge and honor, sometimes reckon with, or get to know one's own heritage. And so I've always been drawn to different landscapes than most people would think of for retreats for that as well. Um, and landscape is a big part of what I'm drawn to. So mm -hmm. like I did a retreat in Northern Iceland and the, we were in the very far North of Iceland in a very remote area. And it was just the land itself could have done all the instructing. I didn't need to do anything. Uh, you know, it just does it, it does it for you. But it's, I think it's incredible when we're able to be transplanted and allow our consciousness therefore to feel more open. Mm -hmm. um, that particular retreat was a rewriting embodied myths. So what I like to do is consider mythology from whatever traditions and how those 
how different stories awaken different facets of us. And it, so it's true within ourselves, we carry around a lot of faulty mythologies. And when you're living according to a faulty mythology, life becomes very limited indeed. But when, let's say, you know, like when you call forth a different aspect of yourself and many of these traditions, the deities, you know, they're mystical traditions, meaning those deities are really just extroverted aspects of the self. Mm-hmm. And so get to, to get to know these things. Um, and as a way, of course, of getting to know a landscape or a culture. So I, do, I think that I'm answering that that's one thing that I'm really drawn to. I'm very much drawn to um, different kinds of landscapes. So we're doing that now. I am like I leave for in a couple of weeks. I'm leading a retreat in Mexico. And that's more standard, I think, to a lot of <laughs> right. people. But um I was definitely uh, curious about Iceland, mostly yeah. because I have an insatiable lust to go see the Northern Lights and haven't. And um, it happened every single day we were there. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> I just would stay there. I can't imagine like a better way to, to experience something, but that whole shift of, of, of your energy, when you switch from one spot to another spot and it's so outside of your norm and everything that you kind of have to learn about yourself to survive and, and navigate that, I think is, is part of the brain break that makes it so much fun. Yeah. I mean, you're relieved from your sense of self. I think there's no greater addiction that we have than to an idea of who we think we are. And when you travel, you're, re- you're alleviated. There's a reprieve from that. Not always, right? I, mean, I spent time um, in early on at some point in undergraduate, I was down in the Atacama desert of Peru and it was harsh and it was hard and it absolutely was scared little me, you know, little 20 year old me because it was so demanding. And yet, you know, all these years later, I can see how it allowed something else to arise. Like you meet a part of yourself that if you're not given these different circumstances, you'll always think that I guess what I'm saying, I think we confuse a lot what's been naturalized for what's inevitable. And when you, when you, when you're moved out of a situation, either through a tragic time, a crisis, right, you're moved out of the norm Mm -hmm. or you choose, you're like, I'm willingly going somewhere totally different from where I am. It, um, it, it frees up a lot of energy and allows us to conceive of and then actually experience ourselves in a much different way than maybe what we've been living according to. And you take that with you, you know, you don't forget that. Yeah. But I will say Northern Iceland where we were was spectacular. I am planning on doing that again. Um, have to do was, that one. Yeah. <laughs> that one. And it was great. It was writing. Mm-hmm. So is yoga as a way of rewriting Mm-hmm. narrative. And then it was writing as a yogic practice of self-awareness and, and understanding. Um, I have a retreat in Tuscany this August. I might also have to do that one. Just that one. I, like, I would love to have you go on that. <laughs> that would be fantastic. You know, it's like an old, basically like an old villa that how do you find the places that you go? How do you decide this is this is the spot where everything changes? 
Well, some of it's just me wanting to go places and then sussing out what might be available. Mm -hmm. In the case of Iceland and uh, Italy, I have the help of a company who handles all the logistics, which is the best part because that's not my forte. I don't right. want to deal so with like that, right? accommodations <laughs> and yeah, meals and all of that. I just, and so that's been wonderful too, because what they do, um, when they first reach out to me, they're like, we have these locations and then you put together what you want to do. And all I have to really focus on is going and teaching. Right. And this one will be this, the one in Tuscany will be, um, it's really about like five sacred, five sacred altars within us. So much in yogic philosophy, so many yogic teachings, things are organized by five, including most people, a lot of people talk about the chakra, chakra system. There's lots of chakra systems, but the main five chakras are associated with five elements. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a way of exploring these qualities. So, you know, like how we explore the solidity and the stability of the earth of us, what that means, right? If I have stability and solidity uh, versus like what fire does within us as fire is transformation. You have to have fire to have transformation. And anytime we put something in the fire, it breaks apart the old molecular forms of that, which was before and frees up the energy becomes something else. So just really cool stuff that we'll do for five days in Tuscany, in our own, you know, in an, in an, our own place and very COVID um, savvy protocols mm -hmm. so that people can, can go. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And so I, on my list, you know, is uh, the Highlands of Scotland. Um, also need to sign up for that one. Yeah. That I one. mean, it's too beautiful up there. We have, that has to be done. Yeah. And track, yeah. you know, like walking and going back to Ireland. I spent time in Ireland. I haven't done a retreat there, but that's, I'm, I'm working with one of the, um, a dear friend, student and fellow teacher we're working on something in Ireland together. So that's I'm drawn to these places, you know, you'll find lots of people who are going to Costa Rica and, you know, I am going to Mexico. It's Which for I think there's value, like there's value in, I want to go sit on a beach and also yeah. do a little yoga and drink some fruity drinks and whatever. But I think, you know, the times that I've gone on journeys that I wasn't expecting, for example, so I went on a trip to, um, with my master's program to Latvia. And then we went to Israel and a girlfriend and I decided to go to Jordan together and went and found ourselves in the middle of the Wadi Rum desert with a Bedouin camp and everything that you would imagine it to be. And something within that just, it breaks your brain to a degree where you learn about yourself, but you also get a whole different perspective on everything around you and people around you. And I think when you meet those people in foreign countries and, and, and connect with them, you realize the commonalities and you realize, you know, the centristic nature of humans and, and let us all come together. And I get really turned on by all that stuff. I love it. I think it's fantastic. Oh, yeah. And you're speaking to something that I think is so, so powerful too, which is like what I was saying earlier, you could find a a thousand ways to say, I love you, right? When you travel, when you travel into different cultures, you discover that you, you don't have to always speak the language. There is a shared language. There is something that if, if we travel with humility and we travel with curiosity, we'll be awakened in you. It's when people travel arrogantly or with a lot of expectation that they're basically wanting a place to accommodate their old ideas about themselves. 
then it's a different journey. But I think when you go, it's like you say it breaks your brain. I let it's like to me, it like breaks something open. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that fire. It you throw yourself into the fire of life and it like, yeah, it it breaks something open, but now something is freed up and you and you can't put that away, right? Like it it continues with you. And it frames how you begin to interact with all kinds of so-called foreign things in our lives, the things that we're less familiar with, you mm-hmm. know, but yeah, experiences like that. I love it. I yeah. Love it. Have you thought about writing a book? Um, yeah. So I started writing a book a long time ago and actually have had this wonderful sort of cheerleading publisher, meaning he has stood by me and encouraged <laughs> me. I even went and stayed with him in Brooklyn and his wife and like to work on it. And I have not, I just never got it done. So it's part of the, it's part of the goal right now mm-hmm. that I start to take more time to do my writing. I feel like my, my days of, t- of public teaching all like talking all the time, that's one of the days I get quiet and then I like to write. Mm-hmm. So that is a goal. Oh, good. We'll make you talk more so that we can get some more out of you on a literal sense. <laughs> well, I would I, love that. I think that you have so much to share. It's such a beautiful, I've been, I feel like I've been watching you forever. You know, you, you were like this little Athenian little spirit running around and, and just so much energy you know, when we were younger and you haven't lost that. And I think there's beauty in the adventure that you go and seek out for yourself, but also the adventure that you bring to people. And, you know, it brings it back to the whole tribe mentality of building your own tribe and then sending them out in the world to create a larger tribe. Um, And I see that happening. I've seen so many friends, like I said, who have gone through, who have met you, who I never in a million years would have thought our worlds would intersect so much. But then I see them on the other side and the beautiful changes in them are just amazing. And so congratulations to you, because that is beautiful. That is that is a gift that you give to everyone. And I think it's it's worth championing. Thank you. Wow. I'm really touched by that. I do think that at the end of the day, the work that I do is connect people to one another, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, I think that's, that's the gist of it. And when, and I think when people feel connected, they're more likely to be courageous. They're more likely to take the risks to do the things that they really want to do because they feel supported. They feel like there's a, there's something t- connecting them and mm-hmm. um, nurturing them in that. And um. And that's important to me, actually, also, because there are a lot of people who get into the field that I'm in or into the discipline that I'm in in, and make of it the industry where it becomes about them, like seeking fame or seeking followers or seeking, right? And that's really just driven from a place of like insecurity. And I'm glad that I have some like enough curmudgeon in me and like enough reclusive hermit in me that I'm like, I don't want that. What I want is for people to step into their lives really fully like not be franchises of my work, mm-hmm. but to be the innovators of their work. And when I see that, like to reflect back to you, when I see the people who I've gotten to work with go off and go do stuff in the world, living this stuff in the world is so, it's, it, that's when I feel like I'm doing meaningful work. It's not, you know, people who just want to, and, I'm, and there's nothing wrong with the idea of wanting to teach yoga asana in a studio or whatever but it's so limited i'm like we need yogis in politics and raising children and like you know in um 
the medical field and what a difference, you know, like I'm thinking about one of my students right now, who's a nurse and has been on the front line of this, of COVID, like was out in New York for 13 weeks in the beginning. She's like, she's like, this is why I became a nurse and they needed nurses to help out there. So she went and she's still right now she's back in car. She's still doing this. I watched that. And I think to myself how, when another student of mine suddenly got very sick this year and ended up in the hospital with sepsis, they didn't know each other, but they've both been through the same program. So the the nurse is there with her. And it was just like this feeling of what it would be like to have her caring for you, knowing who this person is. And then also that there's this, they have an, they have a connection even if they've never met Mm -hmm. that to me is beautiful. And I can just step back because it's really just, you know, loving people enough, caring about people enough, being genuinely interested in people enough that you can support someone in stepping into who they're here to be. And then they've got it. And like to be obsolete is the goal. And so I love that. And I love that, you know, like that's one of the things. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's the lost art of community. And, and I think, And I think a lot, obviously, but I'm not right about a lot of things, but I think, I think that, you know, as we've kind of gone into our, our suburban worlds and, and the expansiveness of, we can go be everywhere and do everything we've lost our knit. And so going back to your, your metaphor of, of the stitching, you know, when you don't have those crosses, how do you rebuild those in a world where you live in a town of a hundred thousand people or 200,000 people or a million people, you know, and I, I like, I like all of this in such a way that I think part of even this project is just to start building that knit a little bit stronger for people who are feeling kind of not attached to anything, not a part of anything. And how do you, how do you kind of give your light and your warmth to somebody who doesn't know where to go for it and doesn't have the resources for it? And I think there's beauty in all of it, but all of it is really selfish, selfishly me trying to make the world kind of a nicer place for my kids and for my friends and for everybody. So I, I, I love it. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I love that too. I had a, I was actually interviewed in a different podcast, um, a while back by one, by one of my friends and she's the director of the yoga therapy school for which I work and mm-hmm. I'm a graduate and so forth. And anyway, we're talking about the beauty, like the beauty in loss and like hope. And we were speaking more to the losses that people are experiencing at this time, what you were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, sensing sort of the ways in which daily life is disrupted and people feel adrift and disconnected and so forth, which just as an aside, like that's the root of suffering in the traditions that I study is the belief that you're alone and anything in life that exacerbates that feeling of exile or isolation, it is extremely painful. But anyway, when we spoke, one of the questions was, you know, like, how do you, how do you have hope when the world I think about a Wendell Berry poem all the time. It's like, it's hard to have hope. And I sat with that. There was a, there was a period not too long ago, like nothing could be too long ago, right? Somewhere in the last (laughs) two years, there was a period of just sitting like, it is really hard to feel hopeful right now. And what occurred to me really comes from the yogic traditions as a teaching, which is 
that you must let go of the fruits of your actions, right? You can't be attached to why you're doing something. And what, and what occurred to me in that is that we have to do these things, even if in our lifetime, we don't see it, but because there is another generation, the next generation that we owe it. And this idea, you know, of the, the first nations tribes who, who articulated in this in various ways. And of course, maybe the most famous is sort of paying it for the seven generations, right? Mm-hmm. You do something with the seven generations ahead of you in mind when you speak about your son. And I think how, like, I don't, I, I need to do what, I need to take action in this life, even when it's hard for me, like divesting from my own white privilege or whatever, it is, even when it's hard for me. Because, and I may not see the benefits of that. But that doesn't mean that there won't be a benefit to that. Mm-hmm. I just, it's not, it becomes less selfish in the sense that it's like, you don't do it for you. You do it for all that makes you, you, you know, like for me, I do so much um, from a place of love for the land, you know, or love for the wildlife. When you think about like, it's not, it's, you do it for the things that make, that bring love alive in you, not just for your own self-preservation, which is a, you know, the spoiler alert, like it won't work. <laughs> You're going to lose. Sorry. Yeah, you'll yeah. Lose. I mean, like you can keep trying, you can Botox everything, you can do whatever, you know, but at some point you're going to have to relinquish that. So what's it all for? And I'm reminded too, there's that the thing in Australian, I, I should know her name. I've mentioned this so many times. I'm embarrassed. I don't remember her name, but she was like a hospice nurse. She is a hospice nurse. She started noticing that at the end of life, how many times people were recounting the things that they, their sort of regrets mm-hmm. and how they're pretty much like all the same, that there's a pattern to it. I thought, well, you know, like if ever we're going to pay attention to those who are sort of truly those who come before us, the elders, what are they telling us? What matters in the end? If it's really consistent at end of life, what people are saying, what actually matters, that maybe we should just start living that way and not wait until them to, you know, know, right? Like maybe take a note, maybe take a note and get it started now because take seriously that people are saying that they didn't wish that they, you know, made more money. They wish things like that. They'd showed, they paid more attention Mm -hmm. to the sound of someone's voice or, you know, or the, or the moments it's all in the moments. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Totally. Um, so when, when COVID went down, you started broadcasting some of your lessons and you, I, I noticed you were opening things up. How's that working out? Is that, are you, do you find that that's actually getting uh, attraction more out of state or is that local people who are just coming in and are you open to out of state and, and, and expanding that group? So I, had already been teaching some things live stream like this, like zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times I was doing that, say I have a mentoring group. So there'd be people who were with me and then there'd be people out of state or just who couldn't be there in person. We'd live stream. So when the pandemic hit and I had to make that initial pivot where everything had to go online, I was lucky that I already had some experience with that, but public classes were not part of, you know, I had not been doing that. Mm-hmm. And then te- and then instructing other teachers how to do that. So we continue to do that to this day. So when I teach in person, 
Like when I teach tomorrow morning in person, there will be some people in the space with us. We have severely limited the numbers. We used to have classes of like 35 people in there. Now, I think right now we've actually dropped where we're, it's either a max of seven or 10. It just depends on the week and how things are going. Um, <clears throat> and then I might have, you know, 10 people online. So I'm live streaming while teaching to people in the space. It's exhausting. I was going to say, does they, that change your energy? Because it's, it's, you're projecting so much. It's one thing to project here, but to project out there is a whole, a whole lot of energy. Yeah. And I'm actually paying attention. Like I'm actually paying attention, you know, so I'm doing things like this, watching and then watching. <laughs> and that's just really tiring. Uh, the beauty of course of it is I have seen students in class who I hadn't seen for 10 years. Mm -hmm. I've um, had, well, so that's been really beautiful. Um, the year long program that we just wrapped up in October, there were people all over the country. Um, there was actually someone out of the country too in that. Um, so I love, in many ways, I love, I love that the live stream and the things that I record, like Yoga of Loss is, will be a class that someone can access way after the fact, mm -hmm. like just watch it on their own. I love that that's all available and it, it allows its expansion and allows people to be a part of things who may not otherwise, if we were just a brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. And I will say, you know, it's, but it's been hard and I don't, I, I, I weigh every day whether or not to keep the brick and mortar because ultimately what root is, is a community. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what created it. So the space itself, it's beautiful and a beautiful space could be created lots of places. And so we'll just see the pressures right now. Um, the flip side of, you know, we're online, but so too is everything else. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, been a drastic difference of, of, you know, what's being financially supported. Right. Right. And it's hard. It's hard because it's so segmented now. And to your point, you can find all kinds of things online, but yeah. the community part, I think is the part that's missing. Um, and it's it. so key to the development of all the things. Yep. One thing I know that we have and why I'm not too terribly, I try to hold very loosely the physical space Mm -hmm. is that we have this connection. So something I say all, all the time to teachers, to like the teachers in training, the therapists in training, and just regular everyday students is yes, you can, you could pay, you know, $15 and have unlimited access to all these celebrity pre-recorded classes, but they don't know you and they're not paying attention to you. And they don't know that your sister just died they don't know that you tore your hamstring last week. Mm -hmm. They don't know that you've been struggling with insomnia. Like I know these things. And so when I'm teaching, even when I'm teaching a group, I'm paying attention to all the individuals I know. And when someone's new, I get to know them. And so in, with its community, as you said, I mean, it's the heart of it and you can't fake that. But it's also, I think, yes, all of those things, it's also that charge you get from somebody understanding you. And I think that shared energy back and forth. And I, I talk about energy a lot just because I think energy is so, so much a part of who we are and what we're doing and this experience that we call life. Um, but I think when you connect with someone and you have that relationship, that energy, it, it 
grows and it's stronger and then you feel more fulfilled and they feel more fulfilled. And then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a Disney movie. Everybody likes it and everybody gets together and hugs and everybody has this happy energy. But I think, I think that's what's missing. It feels like that's what's missing. It ripples out. This is the thing. What I've witnessed all these years, whether it's in trainings, classes, you know, any of the things is where people feel like there is a space where they are seen and they are not just seen like as objects, they're seen and they're held regardless of the experience they're going through, no matter how messy or how delightful they're held, they're welcomed. It's not like so many other circumstances in our lives where it's like, you know, you curate yourself to a certain extent to fit into the situation. This is like the situation holds you. And then it ripples, right? So like a one thing I'll say a lot in just regular classes is surely there's someone who could benefit from your nervous system being a little more balanced today. So then suddenly, you know, people are thinking about their children, their spouses, mm-hmm. like whatever, the cause for which, you know, they're about, they're so passionate and realizing like, as I take care of this, this becomes not only more effective in the world and more resilient in the world and more, you know, uh, but more powerful in the world. Mm-hmm. That's a really big deal to not, um, you know, if I just do it for my own well-being, that's great. My well-being is deserving. But when I think about what what I'm going to do with that, what am I going to do with my health or my vitality or my clarity or my stress, you know, reduction of stress. And so it ripples, right? And then someone like someone in your life starts noticing that you carry yourself differently. Your presence is suddenly less scattered and it's more, it's more gathered. Or that when they're talking, you're less um, reactive and more spacious. And that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's how culture changes, not by trying to get back to where we were, but in fact to say like, well, what is this this asking of us? What is being asked of me right now that wasn't asked of me before? And how does that become like my superpower? And that, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. it does, it takes, it takes community, all of this to keep redistributing the effort and keep redistributing the grace, pass the grace along too. And, you know, in a culture that's really accustomed to the me, myself and I, and the sort of hoarding mentality, stockpiling of resources, stockpiling of this and that, you know, we forget that that, that has an energetic too. And -hmm. the energetic becomes very detached from one another disengaged and uh it's such a felt difference a tangible difference when you are immersed in community Mm -hmm. that was my other response to your question about the retreats earlier is I like I'm intense I'm super intense and so I like to immerse Mm -hmm. and so that's that's the thing that draws me so, you know, we do a lot of retreats at the Mount, at the mountain campus Right. for 15, 16 years. I've run retreats there too, for the totally different thing, which is just stripped down, no bells and whistles, just raw and real. Mm-hmm. And I Immerse- think, I think it's great. I, so that, um, actually that immersive experience, I think is the initial experience that you get when you go to a school like that. Like yeah. that, that's my first memory of the entire experience was we're going to take you out of this experience, put you in the middle of the mountains. And I think, you know, my first experience was like 
a mountain bike ride down Pikes Peak. And <laughs> I was like, I don't know what I'm Help! doing. I don't know these people. Will they rescue me if I die? I mean, like what's going to happen here? But, but it's that, it, it's that almost, it's a forced experience together where you you're forced to create a, a little mini community and then grow from it. Yeah. 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 And I think that has probably framed so much. I mean, having grown up there too, right. right. At, the, at the school, right. It's sort of like in the seventies and eighties, you know, sort of a utopia. Um, and, and then the other place where I lived was out in the middle of nowhere out in the woods. Mm-hmm. So I think all that has framed too what I'm drawn to and why I do the things that I do, but, but uh, talk about community, you know, like you live together, you eat together, you're like everything. And so it is, and to, you know, to commune with. Mm-hmm. So we need it. We need and the, the stories and the experiences. I think we need that shared bond mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. I like do. a way of I gathering do. around the campfire on a regular basis where it's no, it's not to entertain. And it's not like, there's just no expectation. It's just like, you know, are we genuinely curious enough about one another that we want to hear? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do. I want to hear the things. <sighs> yeah. I think that's always been, that's always been my call. I think is I, I love, I love the stories. I love hearing the experiences and I love the sharing and I, everything about that kind of guides me, um, into how can I get more of that and how can I talk to more people? Because I'm never satisfied. I always want more. And, and that's the best way to do it. I think is to, to bring people closer and just make them talk. I love it. It's so sincere. You feel it, you hear it in you. It reminds me a little bit, you know, my best friend in the whole wide world. Um, we grew up at Fountain Valley together, mm-hmm. we're babies together. So we've been friends for 47 years. And, um, one thing I always say about her is like any relationship, I compare it. I'll say, so here's someone who know has, oh my gosh, I just realized what he's doing. Behind oh, <laughs> I didn't even see him, but that's fantastic. <laughs> I'll say, um, you know, Let him no one him. knows me like she does. Mm-hmm. We've known each other our entire lives and we've never not been close, like our entire lives as different as we've been too. And we've been through everything. And yet she never stops asking to know who I am. And yet I've had relationships with people in my life where they think they know who I am. They've got me all summed up. And so they have no idea who I am. Or I think one of the great downfalls of any relationship, friendships, intimate relationships, is when you think you've got someone figured out, so you stop being interested. You stop asking. You lose the curiosity. And suddenly, you know, what starts here years later is here because you stopped, you don't have, if you don't have the genuine curiosity about someone. But I think that that also is um, deepened by a curiosity about ourselves. Like if I'm not curious about me, if I'm not interested in knowing who I am, who will be? Right. Right. I think there's something to be said about how that translates to the global space too. And, Mm -hmm. and our leadership and, and everything that we go through because we accept so often or it communally there's an acceptance of what is given and there is an acceptance of this is what is said. And so therefore this is what I should be. And I don't think that's true. I think we are all beautiful individuals and, and the joy is in learning those differences. Like Mm -hmm. that's exciting. That's, that's the energy. Yeah. And the skill of relationship, 
is not to always focus on the deficiencies in one another, but to actually call forth what's beautiful. Like when I think about the work that I did in graduate school, one of the one of the sort of underlying philosophies that people work with, say with anim- with animal rights, is you know it's kind of like don't be cruel. But the but then the underlying assumption is that left to your own devices, cruelty would be your way. I think when you see people as un, as intrinsically good and and wanting to do right in the world, even if that's not what's happening, like but if you see that as the intrinsic that the intrinsic life, everyone was once a baby, you know, everyone was once a, a, a new life in the world, looking around, discovering, and so the skill becomes: can I call forward what's what's good and kind in you. And right, that's one of the things that's have, what we're seeing in the world right now is instead of calling forth what's good in one another and, and calling us into the, to being better, to being better to one another, to caring more, you know, to sometimes setting aside our own, the selfishness in order to feel more connected in the world that there's a lot of just naming you just keep, it's just like reiteration of everything that's broken mm-hmm. and it gives it energy. Like from a yogic perspective, you just, where your focus goes, the energy goes. So if your focus is always on everything that has sort of, a, is not redeemable, you just keep putting energy into that and it creates this, right? But what it's like, you can find someone with whom you vehemently disagree about things and you find the one thing you agree about and you nurture it. Like, I remember somebody talking about this. They're like, well, I couldn't talk about, you know, it's like racial justice work. She's like, but I knew that we both love dogs. It's like, there it is, you know, or my stepfather. I I love my stepfather so much. Like, I love him, love him, love him. And when I was doing the animal rights work, it was tough because he's a cattle rancher. (laughs) (laughs) you know what we could talk we talk about vegetables we talk about gardening and not as a way of like ignoring something but like find the place where you nurture connection because connection in the long run (laughs) will go a lot further i'm glad he's up in the world um yeah i think you're absolutely correct i think if you you take that little seed of love and find it and grow it um, it's very hippie task, tastic, but I think, I think it's the truth. I think that you do find a much better way to navigate through everything. Yeah. Well, and if nothing else, like, honestly, at the end of the day, I don't feel great when all I'm carrying around and in, in my mind and in my heart are the thoughts of, of criticism for the world. Mm-hmm. It's like, if I'm critical, that's also revealing something I care about. So I was trying to go that next layer. Like when I get really, really pissed, I'm like, okay, I'm going to let myself, and I'm going to let myself talk about that with whoever. And then I'm going to figure out like, what is that showing me? Nine times out of 10, that is showing me deep care about something, deep pain around something, deep fear around something. So you go to the next layer. And suddenly you're touching something very human and you begin to see it in other people. You see their vitriol is fear, or you see their, you know, arrogant, adamant sort of stance about something is fear or it's hurt. And, you know, that's the, that's the place where we can connect. 
Like sometimes the stuff we're talking about isn't what we really should be talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, even as there's a really important work to be done in the world, but it's kind of like if I'm speaking Portuguese and you're speaking, you know, um, French, we may have some crossover, but we're speaking different things. Right. Right. And that culture shift that, that change is, is, you know, from house to house, it's not country to country. Exactly. Exactly. Which is one of the reasons I think it's unfortunate in so many ways that in the United States, the predominant way we organize is like the nuclear family. Because mm-hmm. when you see multi-generation living or more communal, like the villages and so forth, where, you know, it's sort of like, I lean away, I grew up this way, because when we went running amok on that campus, like everybody was another parent, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then all the, all the, everyone was a, like an older sibling in a way, mm-hmm. but just, you know, the sense that you're not, it's not just what happens within one's own home that there's a whole you're integrated into something bigger I like the bigger yeah yeah it's a good place to be well I I could talk to you all day long but I I want to be cognizant of your time too so uh but we will do this again I want to do this I would love it yeah I would love it I feel like we just got warmed up I know and that's why I want this podcast to work because I, I truly do enjoy the conversations. I think that, you know, they could go on for days and I would be just as content. I'd just pour you another glass of wine and we'd sit down and do this forever, but <laughs> thank Maybe you. Maybe next so time much. we'll do it. We'll do it in person next time too. That would be fantastic too. I would love, I secretly love and fawn over your hearth all the time. It's beautiful. So Aww. I would love to come into your space. Yeah. I would love for you to do that. Yeah. I mean, no, for sure. And I'm so excited for you and what you're doing. It's so great to see you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hopefully it, it takes off and, and we build a big tribe and all things are good. And we do this forever. Cause that would make me happy forever. You've been amazing. And, um, uh, before I get too far, let's do the programming notes. So where's your website? How do people um, find you? Okay. Website is rootdownandgrow.com. So it's all spelled out rootdownandgrow.com. And Perfect. that's probably the easiest way to find me. I'm that's on all perfect. the social media, but I flit in and out, as you know. Yeah, <laughs> in and out and, you know, off to Iceland, which yeah, that sounds so beautiful, but. Yeah, well, awesome. you'll get the invite to the next one. Fantastic. You'll be cordially invited to Northern Iceland. I'm looking for all of the invites. <laughs> awesome. Thank you.